Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings. My name is Galen O'Dell, alongside Colin Kirk, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Jim Brady, the founder and CEO of Spirited Media. Jim, thank you so much for coming on to the American Valor Podcast, and welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So to start us off, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Well, I've been in the journalism business for 35 years since I was in college, and but the last 25 of it have been on the digital side of things. So I got into digital right when it was starting in <clears throat> 1995, and um, we just kind of fell in love with the idea of being part of remaking journalism in a digital age. So I, <clears throat> I was a sports writer at the Washington Post uh, when I was in college part-time. And then uh, was continuing to work there part-time as a copy editor and reporter when I got the opportunity to go over and help launch the uh, WashingtonPost.com. So I was on that launch team back in 96 and eventually came back to be exec editor of that site. After I went and worked at AOL for a while, and as I like to joke to people, I've, I've worked in digital so long, I worked at AOL when it was cool. So, so yeah, I've been doing that for a long time. But the last 10 or 15 years of that, since I left uh, WashingtonPost.com in 2009, have largely focused on local media, which is where my kind of heart is, and also where my where the problems are the long the largest in terms of future sustainability and uh, relevance. So I've uh, done all sorts of different things in that space. Started a couple of uh, companies and 
uh, worked for a big newspaper chain trying to help 75 daily newspapers we had there. So the last five or six years, I started a company called Spirited Media, which launched uh, websites in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Denver. And I sold all of those last spring, or I guess spring of 2019 now. And um, since then, I've just been doing local media consulting and just trying to help different media companies with their local strategy, uh, how to monetize digital, how to produce content for a digital environment, because one of the mistakes a lot of traditional journalism has made is it continues to write in the same kind of institutional tone at a time in which people want more voice, not necessarily opinion on everything, but they want to at least feel like they're talking to a real person. And so I work with them on how to develop voice, how to develop interactive features and how to do events. So, so that's, that's the, that's the, that's the dime store version for the last 26 years. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So with spirited media, you guys help improve local media coverage because like since a lot of media outlets are starting to transition to a digital platform. The coverage is a bit different than say like print media or broadcast media. Yeah. It's mostly because the business model is totally different. And, you know, the beautiful thing about newspapers was, um, you know, you could charge 25 cents for the newspaper when it costs, you know, tons more than that to make it because you had advertisers paying the bills. So, you know, that was one of the problems. I mean, it doesn't, the 25 cents you put in is really the price to open that newspaper box. If you want to go back to the old days, <clears throat> it wasn't the cost of actually producing that paper. The cost of producing the paper was astronomically higher. It was just if you could get local car dealers and banks and other companies to pay you huge amounts of money to reach that audience that you were reaching, it could subsidize basically the price for the consumer. And so, I mean, as I always joke, there's a reason you can put a quarter in a newspaper machine and take all of them if you want, right? If they really were making money on that it would be like a vending machine you know you get one Kit Kat bar for a buck you don't get to take them all but in newspapers they let you take them all because at the end of the day that wasn't where they were making their money it was on advertising the problem with digital is that it's flipped now and that digital advertising is so so prevalent as to be valueless now it's easy to buy for almost nothing and so the companies that are are, that used to make 90 percent of their money in advertising and I'm making, you know, 30% of their money in advertising and the, and the revenue shift is to reader revenue, which is subscriptions and memberships, uh, paid products and things like that. And, that. and that's what I focus on, which is you can't expect people to pay you, you know, a subscription fee using the same voice you used in print. You have to, it has to be more personal. It has to feel like it's aimed at a consumer as opposed to this institutional voice, which you could get away with because the consumer is one footing the bill. You have to now talk to them in a way that makes them feel like they're part of something as opposed to this kind of outside the outside the circle. So I work with them a lot on how to write with voice, how to how to ask them what they're interested in and then go cover some of those things, like how to bring them into the journalism process so that they don't just see what you wrote on a given day, but they're helping generate, they're helping give you ideas on what to cover on a given day. And so there's a lot more a lot more things in that. It's throwing events, it's launching membership programs, but but that's largely what I do now and help them with content management systems and things like that. Yeah, and that's a great example of how communication plays such a vital role in journalism because it's not just about reporting on a story. It's how you communicate the story to your audience because the way you communicate it, that greatly impacts how they understand and take in the story you are reporting. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's just, it's a really, it's tricky because we have a lot of media companies that understood that they had to ask people questions 
like, oh, we have to be more too, we have to be more engaging. We have to ask questions like, oh, so send us your dog photos. The problem is a lot of times media companies would just put those things up and then they would pay no attention to what they got back. So the worst is it's bad enough when you don't ask people what they're interested in. It's worse when you ask them and then don't care what the answer is. So, yeah. Did you see a major difference between that, that when you're working with the Washington Post compared to like ESPN? Yeah, oh, they're, they're, they're both mega companies, but ESPN, I think, to some extent, has always been more personality driven. They always had, you know, you know, hundreds of people who were on air at certain times. And so people felt like they had more of a connection to them, even if they didn't. I deal with that now because one of my major clients is a chain of local TV stations. And people feel like they know those anchors, even if they've never met them. And so they have a little bit more carte blanche to show some personality on social platforms or when the Washington Post, we didn't really have that. The Washington Post was very strict and I don't think wrong. I don't think they were wrong to be strict on trying to keep things as straight as possible. So, you know, it's, it's it can be tricky to write with voice because people will sometimes mistake that for opinion or they'll think those are the same thing, which they're not, in my opinion. But so we had to be more careful at, at the Post than we did at ES, than ESPN had to be because they had so many people who were there because they had opinions already. And so expressing those in other platforms wasn't verboten like it was for the Post. So of all the media genres you've managed and worked in, I know you just mentioned how you spent some time over at WAPO helping them set up their website along with ESPN. What is your favorite media to cover and why? You mean in terms of like what platform? Like the you know, like say... Characters? Well, that or also say like political coverage or sports coverage. I think it's local news, which could incorporate local politics, local sports and all that. But I think for me, it's always been local because, you know, it's you look at these big, these big media companies, the big networks and the cable networks and all that. They can kind of cover. They'll always be able to throw more people at a story for a couple of days um, so they can like CNN can flood the zone and. Ferguson or Portland or someplace if they want to go cover the protest, but eventually they're going to go home when after they've been there for three days and the Oregonian and St. Louis Post-Dispatch will still be there covering that story. So for me, local has always been what's interesting because you are in your community. You're not parachuting in and then leaving. Mm -hmm. And so it requires you to build a different relationship with your audience than the cable networks do, for example. Like people love to be on TV. They love to talk to CNN, but at the end of the day, the big cable networks are not going to be trusted in those communities because of the way they come in and they leave. And then often for something lousy that's happening, right? They're not coming there to cover the teacher of the year. They're covering, coming there because there's a riot or a shooting or something mm -hmm. terrible has happened. So local to me has always been the place that I've been most comfortable because it's all about building a relationship and building trust with an audience that, you know, requires that for you to survive. You, they have to trust you. They have to read you. They have to feel like you're on, you know, you're, you have the backs of that city or community to survive. And I, that's different than the big national networks, which can come in, which can come in and kind of create a lot of havoc and leave and pay no price for that. Yeah. And it's interesting how you put that because the way you describe it is kind of like the local news or local journalism is like the bedrock of my journalism as a whole, because you definitely, as you say, have to build trust with the communities and yeah. you're going to be covering so that way. Like everybody is on the same page. And yeah. that way, people don't feel like they're being misunderstood. And also, journalists don't feel like they're being misunderstood either. They want to make sure that they can get the news out accurately to everybody. Yeah, and I think you see this in, uh, 
you know, you watch cable news for two hours on any given day, they'll cite five or six stories that were written by a local paper somewhere. You know, Jeffrey Epstein mm. finally got his kind of comeuppance because of the Miami Herald. And you can go every day that, I mean, these stories end up on cable news for a month, but they started because a reporter somewhere locally went and dug up records somewhere, filed a FOIA request and was able to dig something up that others were not able to dig up. And so that goes away. And I think that in local media is in real trouble and a lot of papers have closed and a lot of them, all, almost all of them have cut their staff by at least half in the last 10 mm. years because the revenue is going away. And I think you see that effect in the, in the current state of our political debate, which is we have less, the communities are not as informed. There's not as much good journalism going on at the local level for the cable networks to take and run with. So they fill it with whatever they want to fill it with. And you just end up with this uh, kind of vacuum of, where people don't agree on even what the facts are anymore. And there's also lots of governments in cities that are not getting covered effectively. You know, it used to be the Chicago government couldn't get away with doing a lot of things because the city government couldn't get, get away with a lot of things because there were reporters digging through records. And it's just that number of people digging through records has been cut by a third or three quarters even in some cases. So I, that's what I, that's why I'm focused on that. Cause I feel like that is sort of, I guess to use a meta, a car metaphor, the connecting rod of journalism is local. And if that rod is gone, then I feel like the whole engine falls apart. Mm. Do you think local newspapers will turn a, an all online format coming in the coming years? Or how do you think they're going to adjust? They'll have to at some point. I mean, they all, every, every newspaper in the country knows when that day is going to come. They all have it in spreadsheets somewhere of when printing the paper becomes more problematic than beneficial from the bottom line. So, yeah, it'll, more of them will have to. It's still, you know, 75% of the revenue for a lot of these places because you know the truth is a lot of the advertisers who've been advertising in papers for 30 years that's all they know and so they keep advertising even though the effectiveness of it is somewhat meaning uh, as has been reduced dramatically so yeah they're going to keep doing it until it's it's not contributing to the bottom line anymore so that could be three five years for some of them it could be longer for some but eventually most of them are going to have to make that shift but it's there it's the problem it's the problem every newspaper has is you want me to take my eye off the ball on the thing that's making three quarters of the revenue and focus on digital. How, how can I do that? And that's a real challenge. I think there's places that have done it effectively, but you want you, but you have to understand the ad revenue is not going to get better. You're just managing decline there. And if you can effectively manage decline, you can still make some money for a little while, but, but you're never going to get revenue up again on the print side. And that's, that's, that's the mistake I think a lot of companies make is we can fix this problem. You can't fix the problem. The internet killed the print advertising business. It didn't kill it immediately, but it, it's bleeding to death slowly over 20, 30 years. So over the past 40 years, Jim, it feels like journalism has been under threat, whether it be from ever-evolving technology and or the current political climate. And as someone who's been in the business for a long time, what are your takeaways from these past four years? Oh, they've been a terrible four years for journalism. You know, economically, it's been a real, we've seen a lot of sites go away. COVID, you know, to be honest, COVID killed a bunch of, I, I say this, not, I don't mean to make a joke out of it, it's, but it's an apt comparison, which is COVID kind of did to a lot of local newspapers what it did to the, a lot of the population. It took, mm -hmm. it sped up the decline of, 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 of papers that already had sort of, I guess, there were comorbidities, for lack of a better term. They were already not doing well, and they were just getting by. And COVID basically took the rest of the print business away and, and, and took any ability for them to survive away. So 60, 70 papers went out of business. You know, city magazines, alt-weeklies went out of business pretty quickly after COVID hit. So that was a really just was the last straw for some places. But 
I think even more than that, I think it's been a bad year for the for the industry. You know, there's a lot of discussion when you get into the politics side of things that the reason the, tr- the press is not trusted by a majority of the public anymore is because Donald Trump has spent four years telling everybody that we stink, except if you look at the numbers of when it comes to trust in the press, they've been declining for 20 years. So I think it's an easy out to say the reason the press is disliked right now and the reason you saw people lighting AP stuff on fire yesterday was because uh, the president continuing to say fake news and, and, and those things don't help. They're, they're, I'm not condoning them in any way. They're terrible. They're just not the entire story. We have been losing trust for a long time. And that's really since the late 70s, if you look at the Gallup polls on that and why that is, has been a big debate in the business for a long time. Trump has exacerbated that and the trust in the press that has declined even more dramatically in the last four years. Hopefully some of that is temporary when we get someone in office who doesn't spend every day telling everybody what we do doesn't matter. But I do think if we if we look at that and we blame everything on Donald Trump telling us and telling people that we're fake news, then I think we're missing an opportunity to learn and grow a little bit too, because the access that the press has to social media right now has made it a lot harder for traditional news organizations to maintain or at least have the perception of objectivity or at least playing it fair. And that has been a problem since social has really kicked in in 08 and 09. And if you really look at the trust numbers in the press, they really started to drop off kind of late in that decade, right about the time social kicked up, you see a drop off in the press accelerating. And I think that's because prior to that, there was there's a phrase that Len Downey, who was editor of the Washington Post newspaper for 30 years, used to call unedited journalism. And unedited journalism was literally like a reporter going on television or a reporter going on a radio show where everything they said just went straight to air without anybody saying, wait a minute, that's not accurate. Wait a minute, maybe you should use a different word. Back in when I was at the Post in 04, probably 10% of the journalism that was produced might fall in that category. Now it's probably 80, right? I mean, everything that goes on social, most of that doesn't go through an editor. People Mm -hmm. going on Fox News, they're not going on editor. People going on MSNBC, not going through an editor. So you have so many reporters out there now, and you have a bunch of reporters who've been told for four years that what they do stinks and that they're you know stupid or whatever. And I think there's a lot of a lot of desire for the a lot of it has burst out in the last four years that we don't seem particularly um, playing it down the middle anymore, trying to get both sides of the story. And this debate in journalism whether we should even do that at all. That we should all you know there's a big debate in journalism about. We should all go to a more moral, we should all have moral clarity. Journalism should be powered by morality, not by objectivity, which I just think is dangerous because who's morality, right? We don't all have the same morals. We don't all have the same positions on things. And so we have always based it on facts because that was a more scientific way of looking at it rather than if you believe something, it must be true. So I think that's the real challenge now that Trump is leaving office is whether the press is going to learn anything from the last four years because while his behavior and what he said to, about the press was was reprehensible, it's not the entire reason that we have a trust problem with the public. And if we think it is, I think we're just going to continue to struggle. Yeah, and you hit the nail right on the head. And it's unfortunate that just one guy like Trump can just really alter the minds of millions of people and how they view things. It's crazy. It's like I re- remember one time, one of my professors at school told me that the more times that you repeat a lie, the more likely that people think it's actually true. Yeah. So yeah, 
journalism definitely has an uphill task, especially with social media and everybody posting all these things whenever they want. They have an uphill battle of making sure that what's going on or what's being spread is accurate. And also, I mean, it's definitely helpful to have fact checkers just make sure that they run through everything just to certify, if you will, that what some of these people say is actually truthful. And unfortunately, sometimes like it could be harmful in what they say, as we've seen the past couple of days. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and that's and the problem. But this is where a lot of this stuff came to kind of came to roost yesterday. Was you know, you know the, there's a the press out there telling them that there's no evidence of fraud in this and that that you know, and then there's just a bunch of people who just don't believe anything they tell them anymore. And that's again, most of that, Albert, a lot of that is on 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 the president and how he's treated the press. But I again, I just worry that we're gonna we're gonna think that's the entire problem because. You know, Trump used the fake news thing a whole bunch of times over the last four years, but sometimes he used it after stories were published that turned out not to be right. And mm-hmm. so it's our it's our responsibility to not give the opportunities to actually point to something that turned out not to be true, or or we reported it so quickly that the context of it was totally missed. And so you take the Covington kids, for example, if you remember that on the hill of on the steps of the Capitol here. I mean, I do, yeah, those kids from within, yeah, within one hour of that being up on Twitter, there were people literally saying these kids should be beaten to death. You know, I mean, it was no time to actually like, and then when the two hour video or the full on two hour video came out, it was obvious it was a little more complex than that. Mm. By then, he already had people on Twitter, you know, basically saying these kids should not get into any college, they should be thrown out of school, they should, their parents should be, they should be taken from their parents. It was like, and, and look, the, the press fed a lot of that. We were on that. If you look at Twitter the day after that, it was people in the media who were saying some of these things. Now, there were some of them were opinion columnists, but we, we, you know, we can't ask people to just look at the people in media and divide them into opinion and divide them into non-opinion. People don't look at it that. So I think when things like that happen and Trump goes on a two-day rampage about fake news, well, we kind of handed him one there where we didn't really do it the way we're supposed to do it, which is take a breath, figure out what actually happened make some phone calls, and then write a sober, well-reported story. We just went on Twitter and reacted, and everybody just reacted after that. And so I think when we can't show more discipline in what we do than the average consumer on Twitter, we're in trouble. We're supposed to, be, we're supposed to have a rigor and a discipline that we use, and we, we, we have failed to use it in a lot of cases in the last four years, and that's given Trump grist for his you know, fake news mill. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So back in 2017, you received the Rich Jaroslavsky Award for your long service as president of the Online News Association, also known as ONA. And so as someone being recognized for your outstanding leadership, what is your definition of leadership? Let's have a have everybody be clear on what it is you're trying to accomplish. Don't let your mission get fuzzy on what you're trying to achieve and and then hire good people and get out of their way. I'm a big believer in that. I've never been a micromanager. I don't want to be one. Nobody wants to have one, but it's really, if you hire good people, you shouldn't have to micromanage. There's a great line. I can't remember. Maybe it's a Peter Drucker line about management that says, uh, 
A players hire A players and B players hire C players because the people who are insecure in what they do don't want to hire anybody who might be as good as they are. And so you end up with kind of this sliding scale. And I think people who are comfortable with who they are and what they know want to put smart people around and want to see how, you know, aggressively you can take whatever hill you're trying to take. So to me, that was always it. And it's also getting to know people individually and not, you know, not assuming that you can manage 150 or 200 people by fiat, right? Everybody has different motivators. Some people are motivated by, you know, getting a raise. Some people are motivated by recognition. Some people are motivated by the next job they want to get. Um, and so taking the time to talk to people and understand what motivates each of them individually is time consuming, but really important. When I did the, when I started at WashingtonPost.com, I think we had 120 people in that newsroom and I had coffee with every one of them in the first three months of the job uh, and asked the same questions. What can, what can I do to make this place run more efficiently? How did you get here? Where are you from? You, I, you know, like, I just want to know a little bit about how you got to this coffee. And I want to know, cause that'll help me figure out, you know, what motivates you. And similarly, when I got the job at Digital First Media, we had 75 daily papers. I visited every one of the 75 dailies in the first nine months, and they were spread out all over the country. But I think people felt like, wow, this guy's serious. He's, he came all the way to Farmington, New Mexico to sit here and talk to us about what the company's trying to do and how we might be able to help. So I do think it's a, a, a one strategy, but one strategy for what you're trying to achieve editorially but many strategies for how you manage individual people. So I kind of want to go back to uh, how you founded Spirited Media. I think it's pretty clear that you have a passion for the local media, but where did you and your wife get this idea to, to launch this kind of campaign to help out the local media? I think it was um, when I was leaving my job at Digital First Media, Philadelphia was a market where we owned six or seven papers around Philadelphia, but nothing in Philadelphia. It just felt like a huge gap. And there was also a lot of problems brewing with the Philadelphia Inquirer at that time. And it was a city I knew well enough. And and I, my desire had been, I'd kind of done everything in the journal. I kind of, I'd, I'd worked for large companies. I'd worked for small companies. I'd been on the business side. I'd been on the editorial side. I'd, I'd been an entrepreneur starting new things inside existing companies, but I'd never been a pure straight up entrepreneur where I started something from scratch, no company, no name, no nothing. And so that was like the one thing that I hadn't done yet. I just had an idea for what I thought the future of local would look like digitally. And Philadelphia was there for the taking as far as we you know, could tell. So we just decided to, uh, my wife and I bootstrapped it and ran it for uh, off our own dime for about 18 months until we raised money from Gannett and a few other places to expand out. So then we expanded out to Pittsburgh and Denver. And at some point it just became clear though that <clears throat> while they were all doing pretty well and we sold them to really good publishers we sold them to public radio stations in denver and uh philadelphia <clears throat> and to uh, another digital startup in pittsburgh it was just it was getting harder to raise money and my goal originally had been i'd want to have one of these in like 20 cities and it was becoming clear that 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 kind of expansion wasn't going to happen in the investment climate because the same companies we were going to to raise money were the ones trying to figure out how they were going to survive and so we decided at that point, instead of continuing to raise more funds, we probably ought to uh, look for buyers here and, and uh, make sure the site survived first and foremost, which they did and they still do. So, but it was, yeah, that was, I just wanted to do, I think I just really wanted to do something that was where the decisions at the end of the day were ours and not the companies. You know, well, they were the companies, except the company was me and my wife at that point. So we were going to make the decisions and it was great. It was great. I'm happy to 
you know, be where we are now, which is focusing on consulting, because you can help a lot more sites than by starting them yourself. But, but that's how it got started. So this is a question that we often ask our guests a lot on the American Valor podcast, and it involves the word valor. So what does the word valor mean to you, Jim? Hmm. It's a good one. I mean, I think it means selflessness in the face of danger. And that danger can be physical. It can be, it can be, a, it can be intellectual. It can be just, you know, ideological danger. Like doing things that are easy to not, it's much easier not to do them than to do them. And so, you know, when you, when you don't have anything to gain from it. And, you know, it's, it's a, I'm a huge um, World War II nut. I guess, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, I've gone to Normandy with family a couple of times and gone to all five beaches and all the museums. There. Oh, wow. And it's just kind of fascinating when you go to those museums and just read about what those guys went through. I mean, in, you know, that's specifically D-Day, but you know, think of war as, the war as a whole and you think about these guys. And, and I always think about this. You think about these guys in the South Pacific who had, you know, some of these guys in seven or eight D-Days when it came to landing on Saipan, Saipan or... Okinawa, whatever, like some of these guys did that a number of times. They're not as big as the one in Normandy, but, can, you know, and it's just, it's kind of mind boggling to think about that. And, I, you know, I was really one of the first generations where there was no draft. And, and it just, my father was, you know, in the army and pretty much everybody my age, his father was in the army. And so it's like, you know, it's just, it's interesting to, it's hard to put yourself in that position to understand what, what true valor is because, I think sometimes you have people who think that, you know, think they're showing valor on social media by standing up for a cause, but there's no valor in the hashtag. You know, there's valor in charging a beach. There's valor in running into a building and saving somebody who uh, you could easily decide to not go run in and save. It's doing something that there's no benefit for you to do, but you feel like you have to do it for a good cause. And I think valor gets, it's one of those phrases that get turned to courage that get thrown around too easy these days. There's I can't imagine, I'm sure they exist because it depends on who the tweeter is, but I can't imagine much on social or Facebook, any social media post really falling in the category of courageous or valorious, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's doing something to me more than sending something. So I mean, that, when I, when I read about those, I guess I've read a ton of books on World War II and it's just that, that I always, the reason it's so fascinating to me is I can't even fathom that. Obviously we've had wars in my lifetime. The Gulf Wars, but I can't, they were very different kinds of wars. Mm -hmm. And the idea of what those guys had to deal with is just mind-boggling to me, which is why I continue to be fascinated by it. But to me, that's, that's how I would define it, is no gain to you, but you do absolutely do the right thing despite the risk associated with it and the fact that there's nothing to gain from you other than feeling like you did something good for the world. Yeah, absolutely. And... I'm in agreement with you in terms of being just so fascinated with the greatest generation. Yeah. I remember when I was reading about the Normandy landings with the U S army. And as we know, they definitely had a hell of a day at the beach and mm-hmm. their day at the beach where they had that day at the beach. So we could all have a normal day at the beach, if you will. And yeah, thing well, it's, it's funny you should. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because we were one of the 
I, I think the most affecting place to go to in Normandy is the American Cemetery by Omaha Beach. And um, 10,000, 11,000 soldiers buried there. And it's just, it's a beautiful, solemn place. It's just, it's really, it's, 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 it's amazing. I know it sounds weird to say that about a cemetery, but it's beautiful. It's just the way it's yeah. laid out. Like Arlington. Yeah, exactly. And you look out, you look over the bluff kind of at the end of the, down to Omaha Beach, you look down on Omaha Beach and you see all these people sunbathing and laying on towels down there. And it strikes you kind of immediately as like, that doesn't seem right. That there are people down there hanging out today when what happened on that beach, you know, 75 years ago is just so you know, horrific. And I think, but that's the, that's kind of what you come back to is the reason they did that was that, so that, that, that family could be laying there on the beach. Um, it was like, it was to get that kind of freedom. I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it still doesn't feel a little weird. It does. But I do get it. I get the idea that that was before the World War. That was a resort beach. And after the war, it was a resort beach. But you do see people down there living their life and windsurfing and doing all those things. And you think you feel a little bit odd about it until you realize, okay, I, I, can, I think I can understand why that's there. But that's really, that always strikes me when we go there is looking over and seeing all, just seeing a regular beach. And the beach were one of the most momentous things you know, in the last couple of hundred years happened, but it's that on a regular old Tuesday afternoon, it's just a beach. Yeah, it's interesting when we I first asked you about what Bauer means to you. I remember you were saying that it could be that somebody's putting their career or their personal interests aside to do something that could benefit all of us. And it just kind of reminds me of what Bob Feller did. Like he was in the prime of his career as yeah. the Cleveland Indians. And around the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Feller recently signed a new lucrative contract. And he was eligible for a deferment, given how he was only 23 at the time. But despite all that, Feller decided to put his country ahead of his personal ambitions. And in the process, become the first Major League Baseball player to enlist in the United States Navy following the attack on Pearl Harbor. So anyway, it's just interesting to hear how many guys like Bob Feller put their personal lives on hold and serve our country in the armed forces. Yeah, they had Ted Williams go to Korea after World War II. Uh, and so, you, you know, you definitely had people, and if I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't know that the second when he went to Korea, if he was drafted, I thought he decided, I thought he signed up. Um, I don't think, I, I thought he did that on his own. The, the second one, I could be wrong, as I said. But I mean, yeah, but that is, I mean, it, it's that's why I think it's so hard to fathom. I think now we people talk about you know being uncomfortable because somebody calls them a word they don't like or or they use a phrase they're uncomfortable with. And I just think we've redefined comfort down to what about uncomfortableness as going to a lecture where somebody has an opinion you don't like and deciding that that person shouldn't speak. To me, it goes against what the country stands for, and that if you don't want to hear something, then you don't go. But like. It's just I think we've we've kind of taken discomfort down to a level now because we don't really have never experienced it at a level that those guys did and lots of other people did in wars. It's just like I, you know, I just when they came home from Europe or South Pacific or the Pacific War, I mean, I can't imagine that they were they they weren't affected by that in massive ways in terms of what they were what they would define as uncomfortable in their lives. I just think that that sets a that sets a level that's almost unimaginable for somebody like me. And I think that, to me, I think that it's it's funny because if you look at the, I, I totally get why the draft went away, and I you know 
I can't say that I spent my teenage years wishing I was in the military, but I do get why that was a certain, so my father used to always talk about how much discipline it instilled in him when he was pretty young to go to Oakland for a couple of years. <clears throat> I totally get why that would change your outlook on life, whether it's being even drafted for a couple of years, non-wartime or actually going to war. I could see how that would very much change your worldview. And I think now, like most of us don't have in our first 20, 25 years, like we don't get put to that kind of test where you have to really grow up fast and rethink a lot of different things. And probably, you know, there's some, definitely some negative outcomes associated with not having those experiences. Lots of, you know, obviously if you're going to war, you miss a lot of terrible ones. So I'm not suggesting it's a good thing to necessarily have a draft, but it's like, I, I do get why that instilled discipline in people at a young age that that's harder to see how exactly that happens now. And when I was young too, not, not even now, back when I was growing up, I didn't have any much discipline either. And the army probably would have been a military branch of some kind probably would have been useful for me when I was young, but I didn't have to. So I didn't. Yeah. It's interesting how the military can change your perspective on life and those around you. Sometimes the experience in the service can be good or it can be bad, but it's interesting how we're all able to generate our own takeaways from any given situation. And that's why it's important to always stay open-minded because it'll be easier to determine what worked and what didn't work in a situation, regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable it may have been. So having said that, it reminds me of an expression that's commonly used in the SEAL teams, which is get comfortable being uncomfortable. So yeah, that definitely hits home for me. Yeah. Well, not, but that, that's part of the problem. We're not really living that right now. There's a real war on ideology and that war is on whatever your, whatever isn't your ideology. Mm -hmm. um, there's sort of this real attempt in it, and it's a bipartisan attempt, I think, where to, to silence voices that say things you don't want to hear. And I think that's, that's real, that's dangerous. And, uh, and I think part of the problem the press has had is that, you know, it's, it's a well-known fact that there have been surveys about this for 50 years that, you know, people who anonymously identify what party they belong to in journalism, it's always been like 85% are Democrats, you know, if the ones who will identify, it's usually like 85, 15 or something like that. It's always been a profession that's largely been staffed by folks who are more liberal and conservative. And that's not a, that no surprise to anybody who works in it, but because you had a certain editing process and three, four people would see your story before it went live, you know, and you took your, you took as much as you could, took your own ideology out of it, then result didn't really carry that weight. I think with the move to social media, a lot of the masks have slipped in a way. And I think for people on the right, they generally don't trust the press anymore because they feel like they look on Twitter all day long and all these people from CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and the Washington Post in their mind are all, all against them. And so it's like a really tricky time right now because once they feel like those people are against them, they don't want them to have the platform anymore. So there's just way too much deplatforming and I don't want to, I don't like your opinion. So you shouldn't be able to have it in the public sphere anymore. I think is really dangerous. And I don't know how we get out of that. Nothing that happened this week is going to help it. That's for sure. So it's a really, it's a really tricky time right now in this country. And uh, I just feel like the, you know, the country gets stronger when the dialogue is better and more and people are more honest with each other about their disagreements. But now it's like people are afraid to be really honest about things because they feel like they might lose a job or they may get attacked on Twitter or whatever it might be. And so the end result has been sort of this 
everybody just a lot of people just laying up and not saying what they really think to avoid the problems that sometimes come with that and as a result i think the dialogue just gotten really weak yeah and i think it's important to remind people that look everybody is entitled to their own opinions and there's nothing wrong with that however if you disagree with somebody about their opinion on a certain topic that doesn't automatically give you a free pass to be hostile towards them. To me, with the way the past four years have gone, it feels like, unfortunately, that notion has completely flown out the window. Most people get where they get politically honestly. You know, you might disagree with somebody, but they generally didn't get to that opinion by some nefarious fashion. It might be where they were raised, who they were raised by, experiences they had growing up. I mean, people don't you run across somebody who has a different opinion than you that can't imagine the immediate instinct being this is a bad person or this is somebody I have to, you know, just talk to them, figure out how they got where they got. And it's amazing how much progress you can make when you just treat somebody with respect up front rather than dismissing them because of an opinion that you haven't even dug in yet to understand how they got to. That's what's really lost. And is that now we just, you know, it's, it's the, the, the real problem with like Twitter, for example, is that, most of the debates on Twitter aren't about the issue at hand. It's like, oh, this person said something I didn't like. Let me go find a five-year-old tweet of theirs and get them out of this conversation. Right? It's not to attack the, it's not to attack the idea. It's to attack the person who proposed the idea to find a way to get them removed from the conversation. And that, this, the, you know, you don't win debates by removing everybody who disagrees with you from the conversation. You win debates by, you know, having the facts at hand and, and having those facts be accurate and well-founded you don't win them by saying this person i don't even want them here because mm. uh, you're not you're not winning anything at that point it's a sort of or you're just you know you're sort of running unopposed at that point yeah of course and we can also have our own opinions but we can't have our own set of facts because facts are facts whether we agree or disagree with them you cannot have your own set of alternative facts and we just have to understand that. Truth matters, especially when we're currently living in a day and age where misinformation is running rampant. Alrighty, so I believe that wraps up our interview. And Jim, thank you so much for coming on to the American Valor podcast. It was great getting to meet you and speak with you this afternoon. Yeah, no, thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. To our listeners, this conversation with Jim Brady concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Fowler Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevaloraward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor Podcast, and more. For Colin Kirk and everyone here at the American Valor Podcast, I'm Galen O'Dell. Thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.